Welcome to the second season of Serial Dater. It only took me three years, but I'm really excited to share it with you. If you're new to the podcast, this is just a quick reminder that season one, while a little dated, is still available for free. Check this podcast feed, and if you do go back, make sure you start with episode one, Bow Tie. You can also find all of season one on our website, www.serialdaterpodcast.com. Don't worry, though, if you want to jump in right here, you'll be fine. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy. There's a joke that my friend Julia tells that I've been thinking a lot about lately. So there's two muffins sitting in an oven. The first muffin looks over to the other muffin and says, Hey, it's getting kind of hot in here, isn't it? And the second muffin says, Ah, a talking muffin! Okay, it might not seem at first glance like a deep philosophical tool, but I think the takeaway there is significant. We all make assumptions about our world, but when those assumptions are challenged or shown to be just, you know, wrong, it can cause sometimes awe and wonder and sometimes anxiety and panic. The reason I like Julia's encapsulation of this idea in her joke is because it accounts for the trauma of realization. Finding out the world isn't the way we thought it was is always painful. Need proof? I have two words for you. Santa Claus. But wait, you're saying, now more than a minute into a podcast that's supposed to be about dating? What about dating? First, give it a second. And second, this is how this podcast works. I'm sorry. One thing I've encountered several times in my dating life is the wistful, solemn declaration, often from people with partners, that dating is horrible. And they're not wrong. Please see Serial Dater Season 1 for some prime examples. But they miss two things. One, when dating goes well, it's actually amazing. Not in a way that makes me want to do it forever. In fact, I should remind everyone up here at the top that I am a reluctant serial dater. But the other thing they miss is that while some of the horror of dating comes from the other person, a lot of it comes from the fact that if we're dating honestly and earnestly, we end up learning a lot about ourselves. And that in itself can be a freaky, painful experience. And there's no better way to learn about who you are than taking yourself out of your familiar environment. For this second exploration of serialized dating, I left the familiarity of my home country and headed to the neighbors. Two years ago, around the time that I was finishing up the first season of Serial Dater, I was sitting at my grandma's house, also known as the Petticoat Lane Writer's Residency, watching TV at 9 o'clock at night when I got an email saying I'd been awarded a Fulbright scholarship to go study in the United Kingdom. This is how we all get big news these days. 
Gone are the envelopes that show up in the mail, the dramatic Hollywood reveal that you'd been accepted. Now your phone vibrates while you're watching Rachel Maddow and changes your life. That being said, I was pretty frickin' excited. This is a snippet of my proposal. This project and the Fulbright experience would be a foundational component of my career and will allow me to produce a work that connects our present to our past, the new world to the old world, and who we claim to be with who we really are. This is a snippet of a New Yorker satire piece entitled Fulbright Proposal for Getting Away from New York Boys by Blythe Roberson. I'm applying for a Fulbright to pursue a taught master's program in creative writing at University College Cork in Ireland because I need to escape New York City boys and find ones I can actually date. To be fair, most boys in New York are not that bad. I've just run out of them, having eliminated all viable ones by already kissing them, by making episodes of my web series about them after knowing them for two minutes, and by screaming at them, go away, go away, after they suggested listening to Ryan Adams's cover of 1989 and not the original Taylor Swift album. The Ryan Taylor controversy aside, the piece hit alarmingly close to home. I don't know Blythe Roberson, but if you're out there, Blythe, stop stealing my life. Anyway, while I technically was not going to the UK to meet a boy, if you listen to the first season of this show, you'll know that boys... British boys were definitely on my mind. Before you go writing me off as a specific case, I feel that I need to point out, okay, maybe semi-defensively, that the meeting-your-life-partner-while-on-a-Fulbright storyline was everywhere. I got paired with a mentor early on, who I never met in real life but traded a few emails with, who was living in the UK because he'd met the woman who had become his wife. Another alum of the program, who I met at our orientation, had stuck around to do a doctorate, not only because she'd gotten involved with the guy, but kinda. In trying to assess my own general attitude going in, the potential not only for a boyfriend, but a boyfriend with an accent was certainly spiking my excitement. Since Serial Dater Season 1 had come out, while I hadn't been precisely celibate, there had been little on the horizon in terms of relationships— something I can probably ascribe to being in a sparsely populated area out on the end of Long Island. Compare this to where I was heading. The award I had gotten would have me based in Brighton, a seaside city due south of London known for its Victorian peer, its liberal politics, and its homosexuals. Though not a precise one-to-one equivalent, Brighton hits a lot of the same cultural sweet spots as San Francisco. Their equivalent of UC Berkeley was the University of Sussex, where I would be getting a master's in contemporary history while I did research to support a novel. Brighton was home to some of the earliest pride celebrations in the UK, and was well known for its annual pride festival, which was among the largest in the UK. How big? This year's headliner was Britney Spears. So, like a matchbox car that had been pushed down and pulled back till its springs started clicking, I was primed and ready to go. Ready to drink some tea, ready to drink some pints, and ready to go on a date with some of Her Majesty's finest gentleman subjects. I'm Charlie Beckerman, and this is Serial Dater, UK edition. It's just relationship.
Episode 1, The Newbie. Before we get properly started, I need to introduce you to a few people, mostly just for clarity. The first is my friend Charlotte, who lives in London. Charlotte and I met working as English teachers in Nice, France, 10 years earlier, and lived together in the lycée where we taught. Since our French year, Charlotte had gone into media and now lives in the London neighborhood of Denmark Hill. I often stayed at the flat she shares with her sister, which they lovingly refer to as Denmark Palace. The next two people I need you to meet are Nathan and Tara. Nathan and I were on the same course at Sussex, were both in our early 30s, and had both escaped the daily grind of publishing careers, giving them up for loftier aspirations. Aside from two others, Nathan and I were the only people on our course older than 25. Nathan lives with his wife, Tara, in a lovely house in the Preston Park neighborhood of Brighton. The two of them took very good care of me throughout the year. Finally, you should meet Fati, a friend from Florida State who had become my go-to G-chat confidant. When trying to remember what happened during my various dates, my chats with Fati have been invaluable, almost as invaluable as her counsel. Even though this whole year she was living in Atlanta, she played a big role in the UK. Anyway, back to Brighton. The city itself is not all that big. The city totals right around 150,000 people, putting it on par with, well, Tallahassee. Still, Brighton's gay pedigree had me pretty excited. In fact, I met my first gay almost right away. Dan was one of the remaining roommates in a three-bedroom flat in a posh part of town, just a short walk from the sea. And when I interviewed for the room, my not-often-trustworthy gay spidey sense tingled. Even though I ultimately went with another flat, a cozy five-bedroom, six-roommate house in a tucked-away lane called Brewer Street, I asked Dan if, despite not having become roommates, he'd like to hang out sometime. Okay, this was originally a longer story, but I'm already struggling to keep these episodes at a reasonable length, so the short version is this. Dan said yes, invited me to go to a chili festival, where I found out that Dan was gay, Spidey Sense Victory, but had a boyfriend named John, Spidey Sense Failure. And over the course of the day, I managed to develop a weird crush on John, Morality Failure. None of my 32 years of life had prepared me for how to navigate this particular corner of gay bro code, so I sort of backed away slowly, but the precedent had been set. Gays everywhere. This turned out not to be limited to Brighton, which ultimately worked out to be both a feature and a bug. Because it's time, friends, to talk about my old partner in dating crime, technology. Going back and listening to the first season of Serial Dater, it's almost a little creepy how much dating sites and technology played a role in my dating life. I mean, let's not sugarcoat it. I met all of those men online. Let's continue not to sugarcoat it. With only a couple exceptions, I met all the guys during my year in the UK online as well. But not on dating websites. We're now in the age of the apps. On one level, for those of us who had the pleasure of trying to meet partners both on dating sites in the aughts and then apps in the teens, the two aren't that different. They provide both a comfortable buffer between us and the dating pool writ large, the ability not to have to talk to someone you're not interested in should not be undervalued, 
and a clarity of purpose. For the most part, most people on these services were also, just like me, single and searching. But also, everything was different. The apps were unapologetically image-focused. Tinder had changed the game with its rapid-fire swipe interface, showing you image after image of potential partners in succession, asking you to make near-split-second decisions about whether they made the cut or not. While there are a number of so-called swipey apps in the mix now, for the purposes of this podcast, the only one that really plays a role is Tinder. And before I go any further, I figure for my listeners who have never had the pleasure of using Tinder, it's worth it to cover the basics. The interface sort of looks like a deck of cards, face up, with only the top card showing. On each card, you see someone's face, their name, their age, and if they listed their workplace. At this point, you have two options. You can swipe right to indicate that you'd like to talk to them, or you could swipe left to indicate that you would not like to talk to them. You are only able to talk to the people that you've liked and who have also liked you back. You also have a third option of looking at a few more of their photos or reading the short blurb they've written about themselves if you need more information to make your decision, but the basic thrust of the app is hot or not. The other strange aspect of Tinder is that it looks for people in your general geographic area wherever you open it up. This means that if you open it while traveling, even just from Brighton to London, not only will you get a whole bunch of new people in your deck, but you'll also end up in theirs. Even if you don't travel that much, you'll still pick up the passers-by who wander through your area. This turned out to be both good and bad. Sure, I'd get a wider variety of people, but also it increased the chances that they may live far, sometimes very far, away. One last wide disclaimer before I get to the good stuff. This season of Serial Dater is going to be a little different from the last. Instead of a succession of first dates within a concentrated period of time, which, remember, I mostly learned my lesson from, I'm covering the span of a whole year here, focusing on the guys who left the biggest impression on me. Whether I left a similar impression on them is up for debate, but still, each one was an important part of my dating year. To properly understand how I dealt with this first guy, and I wish there was a better word than that, or a more precise word, something like bow that doesn't recall the Old South, I think it's important to explain how my own stunted dating history has affected almost every single romantic interaction I've entered, which is this. I've always assumed that I was at a disadvantage. Whoever I was dating, whatever the age difference, I always assumed that they were coming to the situation with more knowledge about dating, about romance, about sex, than I had. And as we know, when you assume, well, let's say I didn't equip myself perfectly. That being said, Let's meet our first date. The start is all behind us. There's nothing to fear now, nothing at all. In the weeks before I moved into my room in Brighton, I stayed with Charlotte in Denmark Palace, and, well, I dove deep into the world of London Tinder. Because Tinder apparently has a very long memory, I can tell you that in my first week of swiping, I matched with the following gentlemen. Harry, Alex, Alexander, Ian, Emery, Shalom, and Dionysus. This episode is not about them. It's about a guy I matched with a few days later. By the way, I considered giving these gentlemen nicknames like I did in season one, but since I, like, got to know these guys, it seemed pseudonyms were more appropriate. Kieran described himself as a scientist living on the south coast of England, and his photos advertised a boyish quality— a broad, untempered smile, bright eyes, and, 
okay, a certain je ne sais quoi of nerdishness that I found extremely attractive. There was also, I would realize later, an unpolished quality to the photos. These weren't photos that had been tirelessly poured over to choose the best lighting, angles, and facial expressions. I wouldn't be surprised if these were just the first six photos on his phone that he decided to upload. I took it as a sign that he was sort of a non-scene guy who had decided that he was just a bloke. I was sort of right and sort of wrong. I haven't thought deeply about whether it's causation or correlation, but for whatever reason, British gay men tended, more often than not, to have excellent chat skills. And this was never more true than it was with Kieran. Looking back at our early chats, it seems odd that we should have gotten on as well as we did, considering the first thing we established was that we didn't live in the same city. But England, especially the areas around London, has a certain geographic continuity that makes flirting and even potentially meeting up with someone in a different city not quite as daunting as it feels in the U.S. In Kieran in my defense, we both said we were in and out of London a lot, so the distance seemed, to me at least, fairly harmless. And, like I said, excellent chat skills. So what kind of science do you do? Once a physicist, then a nuclear reactor physicist, now a radiation scientist. Wow, that's super rads. Get it? Excellent pun. Stuck out tongue emoji. Sorry, not the best foot to put forward. Oh no, I'd say you're curing favor. I should clarify that excellent chat does not necessarily mean makes for good listening. What it does mean is that we started chatting at 7.30 in the evening and kept up a pretty consistent patter for five hours, exchanging over 250 messages. I'd forgotten it until now, but apparently, the night after our first marathon chat session, I attempted to initiate a sort of say-goodnight-to-one-another system. This might sound a little calculating, or maybe just schmaltzy, but this is something I've craved from my long-sought, never-realized, long-term relationship— That there's someone out there who just wants to check in with you every night, hear a couple of inane words about your day, and say goodnight. So the next night, I wrote, Hi, I'm about to go to sleep, but felt like I should say hi first. Hope you had an excellent day of science. We exchanged a few quick messages, but the real surprise came the next night, when he wrote, Hey Charlie, I'm about to hit the sack, but I thought I would return the favor and say, Hello, hope you had a good day. Kieran provided this and more, though. His banter was witty. I was asking him about his job, and he explained, I do plenty of normal tedious stuff. I'm writing a safety report at the moment. Thank God. I was worried you might just be having a ball playing with radioactive material all day. I'm only allowed to play with it at weekends. I also give it to my friends for Christmas. Well, I know it's early days, but I have been hoping for a few molecules of francium in my stocking. That's the one there are only, like, six atoms of, right? I think it exists for all of ten seconds or something. It's like the flip side of diamonds are forever. Francium is only for ten seconds. Maybe there needs to be a James Bond novel called Francium is for ten seconds. Bond, your mission is to recover the francium in the compartment. Oh, it, it's gone. Mission over. Film ends. Things took a turn, however, when, later, discussing our relative abilities and inabilities to grow facial hair, I sent him a before-and-after picture of myself, bearded and unbearded, from Instagram. Just to prepare everyone, things are about to get meta. I couldn't help but notice, on the Instagram link you sent, 
that you did a podcast on dating. How did that go? Stuck out tongue emoji. So I should probably take a moment here to discuss how my life has changed in subtle but not unappreciable ways since releasing Serial Dater Season 1. One of the reasons I'd been drawn to podcasting was, and still is to a large extent, podcasting is still a little bit in its Wild West phase. Anyone with a decent microphone and the patience to learn either Audacity or GarageBand can produce their podcast and get it into the same marketplace as every other podcast. It's not even the equivalent of self-publishing on Amazon. It's more like being able to walk into Barnes & Noble and put my book on the shelf next to David Sedaris or Toni Morrison. Yes, far fewer people will see my book than theirs, but it's there. Whereas in so many other types of writing, there are various gatekeepers, people whose job it is to tell you no. At the moment, in podcasting, as long as you can make the thing, you can put it out there in the universe. What that means, though, is that then it's out there in the universe. And while it's not like I dropped a bunch of heartfelt secrets on the net for full display, there's a pretty huge chunk of me just kind of floating out there. Which in some ways was kind of the point. I had experienced, okay, still experience, a lot of shame surrounding my continued inability to find a boyfriend. And Serial Dater had been, to some extent, an attempt to embrace and examine my past as opposed to running away from it and also thinking about dating in a critical way at the same time. I just wasn't sure if I wanted the guys I was dating to see all that. Of course, when I'd been making the podcast, I knew that everyone seeing it was a possibility, but I knew it on a surface level. As Kieran asked about it over Tinder, I felt a stab of, well, fear, really. Still, I remained calm and told him he was free, obviously, to check it out if he wanted, though I did have more than a little trepidation about how he'd take it. Plus, I felt like I needed to make it clear that I wasn't, like, trying to get him to discover it in a gee, I wonder who left this podcast link here kind of way. You're welcome to check it out to see just how crazy I am. I forgot it was on there. I wasn't trying to accidentally on purpose get you to ask about it. (laughs) Apologies for intruding. No, no, not at all. That's the thing about putting your work out there. Once it's out, it's out. A bit later, he followed up saying... Having just switched on the first of your podcasts, may I make two immediate observations? You speak very well, and you have a lovely accent. (laughs) It's always weird for me to be complimented on my accent. It's like someone saying my finger shape is excellent or something, but thank you. I realized that my main anxiety here was that since, like most normal people, Kieran did not have a six-part podcast about his fumbly romantic life, if he listened to even just the first episode or two of the podcast, he'd end up with way more information about me than I would have about him. Planning our first date was a bit of an ordeal. Even though we'd matched when I was in London, and we'd both made claims that we were in London all the time, the truth of the matter was that neither of us lived there. Since matching in the early days of September, I had finished my Fulbright orientation and moved myself out of Charlotte's sitting room in Denmark Palace and into my house in Brighton. I've been back and forth to London already at least half a dozen times since I'd arrived in the UK, but I was eager to meet Kieran. So eager, in fact, that I offered to take the train to meet him in Portsmouth. I should say that this eagerness was co-sponsored by my love of trains and my desire to take them anywhere for any reason, 
But still, a three-hour return trip to meet up with a guy I'd never met before was indicative of something. I suppose this is as good a place as any to briefly address my feelings about distance. Which is this. For the right guy, I'm willing to travel. Far, if necessary. Which is funny, because for a period of time in New York City, I would barely consider anyone outside of my borough, let alone outside the city limits. But having been taken out of the homo-dense Big Apple and served my time in Tallahassee in the east end of Long Island, that kind of stinginess no longer seemed necessary, or appropriate. Travel for the right guy wasn't just a chore. It was a relished task. It wasn't aimless travel. It was travel for love, or what might hopefully turn out at some point to be love. And there happened to be a direct Brighton to Portsmouth train that cost roughly 10 pounds. Was this not fate, as made manifest by the National Rail Service? Still, Kieran talked me out of it. How long does it take? I don't want to drag you on a huge, never-ending journey. It looks like it's about 80 to 90 minutes. Oh dear God. I guess that's kind of a lot. I'm probably not worth the three-hour round trip. Well, I'd imagine you are, but maybe that puts a lot more pressure on things than is necessary. We agreed to meet up in London. One thing I'll say about dating in the UK is that there is almost zero quibbling about what one will do on a date. Because the answer is just so bloody obvious. You go to the pub. Pubs are great for dates because they're like bars in that they serve beer and people hang out there for all sorts of different shady purposes. And they're like restaurants in that they usually aren't so loud that you can't carry on a conversation. And if you're in dire straits, you can order some chips or other real food. That's what I thought we were going to do, but at the last moment, Kieran threw me a curveball. Crazy far out idea. There's a tea shop in Vauxhall just south of Victoria Station. Would you like to meet up there and we can do the full English experience? It's called the Tea House Theatre. We discussed how we could segue to a pub afterwards, but this is another thing that seems to stick out with hindsight. It played somewhat counter to my notion of him as just a bloke, because a proper bloke probably wouldn't have suggested a tea shop. But I was excited, and I liked tea, and agreed without a second thought. We met at Victoria Station. Both of our trains were late, and in the end, Kieran beat me there. I found him waiting patiently for my train in the corridor underneath the shopping mall that sits over the tracks where the trains from Brighton arrive. He wore loose pants and a shapeless top, and he seemed very excited to see me. There was something familiar about him that struck me there that I still couldn't quite put my finger on. We greeted each other warmly, and... Okay, another side note here. I have an embarrassing admission. You'd think that, as someone who already had a dating podcast in the can, that I'd be meticulously taking notes and documenting these dates. If not in the moment, then afterwards. But sadly, okay, and somewhat stupidly, I did not. I can come up with some excuses as to why I didn't, the one that I'm most ready to subscribe to being that over-documenting the dates would make them feel more like journalistic expeditions and less like actual dates. And while, sure, I've enjoyed making serial dater, that was never the point of going out on the dates. Yes, there was the odd date or two that I went on just for the story, but as I'm sure you've all gathered by now, I actually really wanted to meet someone. It was hard for me to fathom how an earnest date could be followed by a feverish journaling of said date. Not for other people, just for me. 
All of which is to say, I do not remember whether we hugged or shook hands or high-fived when we first met. My gut instinct says it was a hug, but then Kieran was a little awkward, so maybe we shook hands? I can't for the life of me remember. We walked out into the late September afternoon, which I remember as being pretty delightfully pleasant. The stroll from Victoria to Vauxhall isn't exactly short, but in the excitement of meeting a new guy, the walk passed fairly quickly. The Tea House Theater is located in a former pub, and to the best of my knowledge does not involve in any way a theater. The whole place is mismatched, from the tables and chairs to the plates and silverware to the teapots and cakes. There are little witticisms painted on the walls in a curly cue cursive. Fancy a homemade sandwich? A wall outside asks. Inside, the painter has misquoted Henry Fielding, saying gossip and scandal are the best sweeteners for tea. Fielding's first additive was love. The whole thing felt a little bit like the Cheshire Cat from the Gilmore Girls, a bed and breakfast which symbolized everything the Gilmores hated about cutesy New England B&Bs. Ah! What is it, dear? Uh, there's just a lot. A lot of flowers. Yeah, like a ton of flowers. A plethora of flowers. <laughs> a load of, of flowers. Thank you. I get so many compliments on this room. Yeah. Are they moving? It looks like it, doesn't it? There's foil in the paper, and it gives it that illusion. Isn't it terrific? <laughs> Unbelievable. Of course, if it hasn't been clear already, I'm a bit of an Anglophile. It's nothing I particularly set out to become, but... I have to concede there's something irresistibly adorable about the British, with their teas and their scones and their pubs and their queens. I'm not about to get a tattoo of the Union Jack or anything, but I won't say I haven't fleetingly considered it. On the other hand, the teapot arrived wearing a knitted sweater, so maybe you can draw your own conclusions. For a picture of the teapot sweater, head to our website, www.serialdaterpodcast.com. Conversation with Kieran continued apace. We talked about politics... He voted for the Liberal Democrats, which, depending on what crowd you were spending time with, could be a dangerous move. And I vainly, naively poo-pooed the ascendant candidacy of Donald Trump, who at this point in September of 2015 was just beginning his systematic destruction of the Republican primary field. Kieran laughed at all of my jokes, which was nice, though if I'm being brutally honest, he laughed at a few which I didn't think were all that funny. After tea, we worked our way east through South London, walking through the Oval in Kennington, finally coming to rest at a pub called The Beehive, where we sat outside as a family inside celebrated someone's 60th birthday. After my second pint, it seemed likely that we might get invited in to join the festivities. Instead, we stayed outside as it got cooler and darker, covering topics like sports and family, though it was all pretty softball stuff. No pun intended. I had made plans to meet up with Charlotte for dinner, so after a third pint, It's really quite amazing how quickly you can get tipsy at a pub. I said I needed to head out. Kieran walked me partway to the road where I would catch the bus to Denmark Palace, and on a street corner under the cover of low, drooping, flowered branches, we kissed goodbye. So here's another problem I have. I really like making out. Like, really like it. If I were more easygoing and less afraid of other people's hygiene, I'd probably just go to gay clubs and make out with everybody. Though, I should say, I do prefer to know who I'm kissing. But put me on a first date, give me a couple of beers and a willing co-kisser, 
and I'm not going to be able to resist. Also, real quick, in case anyone is thinking that kissing is a metaphor for, you know, other stuff, it 100% is not. I mean, I like other stuff too, but if you were to ask me would I rather only be able to kiss for the rest of my life or other stuff for the rest of my life, I'd have to think for a minute. Maybe more than a minute. Anyway, what you need to know is that on some random street corner in Kennington, South London, when what I really should have done was a sensible, measured kiss on the cheek, maybe the lips, instead, I totally macked on Kieran. Except I'm also a little bit of a kissing snob. In fact, I'm going to double down on that by comparing kissing to drinking red wine, in case you weren't sure how serious I was about the snob thing. So, like, most red wine is actually pretty good. And I'd say 90% of all red wines I drink are like, sip, great, sip again. 5% of the time, though, I'll sip a wine and I'll be like, damn, and immediately try to commit the name of the wine to memory. I'll feverishly look for it in supermarkets and wine shops, the memory of the taste of the wine possibly exceeding its actual performance. And then there are the wines that you sip and you're like, eek. Sometimes it's just bad wine, but sometimes it just needs to breathe a bit, and that's a real thing. I was hoping Kieran just needed to breathe. As we finished kissing, Kieran asked, in a way that was so British I half expected him to spontaneously burst into the red uniform and black bearskin hat of a Buckingham Palace guard. So, am I to gather this went well? I chuckled and said, yes. Our second date was a week after the first. Actually, hold up, we're entering new territory here, because in original recipe serial dater, I only went on one second date. Spoiler alert? I go on second dates with all of the main characters in this season. I hope that doesn't take the suspense out of it for you, but as much of a science as there is to the first date, there's almost as much for the second. The first and perhaps most obvious measure is likelihood of a second date, and this is based on two parallel measures. How much each person was into the other measured as a function of how likely each person is to suggest a second date. Let's break it down into four categories. Category 1. This person did not have a good time on the date and would not go out on a second date regardless of how the other person felt. This category covers a wide swath of experiences, from apathy to downright hatred. Though I should note that apathy and indifference in this instance are not exactly the same thing. Though usually the dates that produce this reaction are pretty unenjoyable, there's a certain pleasant clarity to knowing for sure that you're just not that into him, or really, really aren't into him. Category 2. This person had a neutral time, but depending on the enthusiasm of the other person, could be persuaded into a second date. They will not, however, initiate a second date. Category 3. This is probably the trickiest category, which is the person who had a good time on the date, but not such a good time that they'd suggest a second date outright. However, they would agree to a second one if the other person suggested it but also they might accidentally initiate the second date as part of the normal pattern of conversation. It would go something like this. Hey, I had a good time last Tuesday. We should do it again sometime. Sure, how's Saturday? Oh, uh, sure. 
Category 4 definitely wants to go on a second date. Again, it can encompass a wide range of post-date reactions from, that was fun, I'd do it again, to, I have found my soulmate! What's most important about this category is that this person will eagerly, sometimes too eagerly, take the lead to plan date number two. Taking this a bit further, and borrowing from my own first-hand experience of first dates, what one really needs is an array, which I've made, but you can't see on a podcast, so I put it on the website, which you should check out. I think, following our first date, I was experiencing a 3-4 situation. Kieran did not mince words about how he was feeling. Charlie, thanks for today. Really enjoyed it. Hope you made your bus and are presently enjoying Swanky Town. In this context, Swanky Town was referring to Denmark Palace. I had a great time this afternoon and hope we can do it again soon, hither, thither, and yon. In this context, I was squiffy, one of the most delightful British euphemisms for being drunk. Okay, so I guess I was technically the one who suggested the second date, but that's okay. Three is definite interest. I had no equivocations about wanting to see Kieran again. That being said, there was certain data I had gleaned from the first date that was hard to square with the fantasy I had constructed of who he might be. Our parting kiss was timid, even green in its uncertainty. It had none of the pent-up, I'm gonna say it, lust that I had experienced the first time I'd kissed Matt, the diamond in the rough week of first dates from Serial Dater 1. My abstract idea of Kieran made flesh had not started a fire. It had just been the first few swipes of the flint. We continued texting apace throughout the week, more or less at the same clip as before, but something was definitely emerging that I hadn't been able to put my finger on until a friend of mine told me about a scene in an episode of Master of None, where the two characters, a nascent couple in the enviable five to eight month stage, decided to each write down on a piece of paper the percentage confidence they have that the relationship will work out. Even if I wasn't sure, does that make me a horrible person? Or what are you, like 100% sure about everything? You have no doubts, no fears? No, I'm not 100% sure. What percentage sure are you? Hey, why don't we just, why don't we, why don't we just write it down? It'll be an interesting experiment. Really? You want to write it down? The percentage I think we're going to be together? That's a horrible idea. Why don't we just have a conversation? Because I tried to have a conversation, and you just started getting mad at me. Okay, fine, yeah, let's write it down. 80. 70. What? 70 is a high number. It's not as high as 80, the number I wrote. And I love that you wrote that down, but 70 is just as high. No, if there's a movie on Rotten Tomatoes and it has a 70%, people say it has mixed reviews. And I definitely don't go see it. So you're saying that if our relationship was a movie, you wouldn't go see it? I was being conservative. I didn't want to go super high and you go low. What does it even matter? Shouldn't we have both written 100 right away without even thinking about it? While these characters seem to be experiencing a confidence gap, Kieran and I seem to be having a bit of an enthusiasm gap. Even though we were both enthusiastic for a second date, the fact was that he was more enthusiastic than I was, and not being able to mirror that enthusiasm made me a little uneasy. Editorial note, I considered taking out this clip for hashtag me too reasons, but I still find the lesson really valuable. But boy, does that Rotten Tomatoes line land bad now. The enthusiasm gap soon widened into a chasm. For our second date, I managed to talk Kieran into coming down to Brighton for the day. That is, I said, can you come to Brighton? And he agreed immediately. It was another day date, and we made plans to go to Devil's Dyke, which should be the name of a really awesome lesbian bar, but in fact is the name of a mountain, well, a large hill, really, 
just outside of Brighton, that offers lovely views of the Sussex Downs. The night before, we were finalizing plans and generally having a good, flirty, chatty time, when he asked, Charlie, can I ask you a serious question? Serious question was in all caps, and even now I can't quite untangle the various levels of irony that the capitalization encompassed. I just thought it is worth checking, the the tindering and such. Are you looking potentially for something long-term as I am? Oof, is what I thought. But also, my heart broke for him. I knew where he was coming from, wanting clarity in the shark-infested waters of dating. Especially in this brave new world of grinder and tinder and everything, I could see a tender young thing like Kieran getting knocked six ways from Sunday by the uncaring and the unfeeling, and I certainly did not want to be a part of that crowd. On the other hand, I also had to get real about my own feelings for him. Did I want to go on a second date? Yes, for sure. Was I smitten? I don't think so. Not yet, anyway. And Kieran's uncertainty and fear, because that's totally what it was, wasn't helping me kindle new, exciting feelings. Of course, I couldn't say any of this. So I did what I could to try and thread the needle of being honest while not breaking the dude's heart in half. You weren't kidding. That is a serious question, I began. I am looking for something long-term, but I suppose I'm not exclusively looking for something long-term, if that's not too weaselly an answer. But there was a more pressing question I needed to ask him. You don't have to answer this, but why do you ask this the night before our second date? Uh, because I have incredibly bad timing, he responded. At least he hadn't lost his sense of humor. I suppose I think we have got along quite well, and... I'm inclined to make a good stab at things, and before putting the effort in, I suppose it's just worth checking that I haven't misunderstood. Double oof. So, there was a very real elephant in the room, and I was going to try my hardest to be real with Kieran while ignoring the pachyderm. Well, I don't think you've misunderstood anything if what you understood is that I've had a good time chatting with you and that I had a good time hanging out with you last weekend— I will say in a kind of embracing the universe in its many-faceted dimensions way that my biggest failure in dating has often been seeing dating as a means to an end, when actually the means is part of the good stuff, if that makes any sense. Anyway, my plan is to look forward to tomorrow as a fun day hanging out with Kieran, a guy who I like spending time with, and not try and worry too much about the other stuff. In retrospect, I'm not sure if this was just willful dishonesty towards Kieran, towards myself, And while I can defend every sentence, I also have to acknowledge that I ignored Kieran's real, unasked question. Do you like me? Do you love me? I don't mean to appear like an over-warrior or anything. I'm I'm just a very, very unsuccessful dater. Uh, haven't you listened to my podcast? I asked. At this juncture, I begged off for sleep, but I sensed that we had just passed a crossroads, and perhaps I had taken the easier but ultimately crueler path. I was a few moments late to meet Kieran's train, but fortunately he was tall, and it was easy to pluck him out of the crowd of Londoners coming down to the seaside for the day. We looked in vain for the bus that was supposed to take us up to the dike, but in the end we couldn't figure it out, and ended up just going to the pub. Are you sensing a pattern here? We spent most of the afternoon at a pub called The Eagle, which, unlike the New York and Los Angeles leather bars by the same name, 
is just a very normal pub, although I did manage to grab a picture of this dog just sitting on a bar stool like it's people, which was great. I'll post it on the site. Again, I don't have a great record or recollection of what we discussed. I'm sure I bitched what the British call whinging about my course. I'm sure he talked about his work. Maybe this is part of the magic of the English pub. Nobody really remembers anything that was said afterwards. We switched at some point in the evening to another pub, stopping on our way in a narrow passageway that was secluded enough to allow for a little surreptitious making out. I was gathering more data all the time. I realized that one issue with Kieran's technique was that his tongue kept moving at a constant speed, kind of like a windshield wiper. We continued on to an even pubbier pub called the Battle of Trafalgar, where I decided I needed to get some more information. I asked him what he'd meant when he'd said that he was very, very unsuccessful at dating. He told me that he'd only been on a few other dates, and only really been dating guys since March. That is, six months earlier. He had told two of his friends that he was gay, but he wasn't out to his parents, or to any of his other friends or co-workers. So, I sort of have a rule that I don't date guys who are in the closet. It's partly for honesty reasons. If you want to do gay shit, you better be out. Partly for political reasons. The more people who are out, the less othering gay people experience. And partly for emotional protection. If you're just trying on your sexuality, I don't want to be the trial balloon. But A, that isn't like an actual rule I'd ever enforced. And B, I worried that it would set a weird ultimatum whereby he'd go declare his gayness to his family and then come back to me and find me in my state of still uncertain interest. But also, I was remembering my own early dating period. I had been 19, I was a sophomore in college, and a cute blonde boy who had come to work in the layout department at the NYU newspaper, which I supervised, more or less seduced me. I mean, I was willing and ready, but still. I was, at this point, highly inexperienced, and he was... not. I found his past experience with guys super intimidating, and even though he showed me some stuff, I felt constantly culpable for my not really knowing what to do. While we ended up fooling around plenty, we never really covered all the basics, and so when he broke up with me six weeks later, after I had a nasty bout of mono, I was lacking a good deal of critical bedroom experience. It was like I'd been given the Cliffs notes for Romeo and Juliet, but the notes on the last act had been torn out. It took me a few more years to get sex with guys figured out to a point where the possibility of it was purely exciting and not cripplingly terrifying, and while I can't, and won't, lay that at the feet of the guy who for years I stubbornly referred to as my college boyfriend, I have had moments where I wished he could have shown me a little more kindness. And a little more... stuff. Kieran had selected a sensible 9.30 train to take back up to London, where he was spending the night at his parents' house. I had been toying with the idea of extending an overnight invitation to him, but that would have almost certainly been a selfish act. Still, we slipped out of the Trafalgar a few minutes before he had to leave for his train to continue snogging, this time in a small, narrow walkway which had house entrances on it. Somewhere in here, I decided that I would try and show Kieran the practical kindness that I felt that I myself had not received. I stopped kissing him at one point and said, You don't have to do that with your tongue, keeping it constantly moving. You can, you know, just sort of go with the flow. Oh, he said, a little startled, but it seemed not unpleased. Okay. And he took my note to heart, and he earnestly worked to improve. 
A few minutes later, he got on his train, and I went home and watched an episode of Mary Berry's Favorite Things and tried to convince myself that I was doing the right thing. Up until this point, our chatting had kept up the energy it had launched on, but things started to slow a bit after our second date. We didn't chat at all the day after, and then only chatted for a little bit through the following days. Halfway through the week, halfway through our conversation, Kieran said, Right, now this will be the weirdest offer you have ever had. I have been offered two tickets to a drinks reception at the House of Lords. I have been before, so normally wouldn't be interested, but would you like to go with me? Funnily enough, I had already been to visit Parliament, as part of the orientation the Fulbright program put on for us when we first got to London. When we'd gone, however, the House of Commons had been closed off for, like, official parliamenting. And after verifying from Kieran that there would indeed be a visit to the Commons on this tour, I accepted. When is it? I asked. November 6th. This, it turns out, was the day after Bonfire Night, or Guy Fawkes Day, also known as the day when Britons like to set shit on fire. I had been planning on getting rather drunk that day, which made me tentative about agreeing to be somewhere important the next day. But also, we were having this conversation on October 6th, a whole month away. Kieran seemed to be sensitive to this point and threw in a caveat. I mean, if we decide we hate each other between then and now, I think I can probably get my money back. His intention to alleviate my anxiety about agreeing to a date so far in the future was sweet, but I couldn't help but read between the lines. We had just gone from being offered tickets to I'm going to buy some tickets. Towards the end of the week, Kieran asked if we could hang out that weekend. I demurred, saying I couldn't make it to London, but he eagerly volunteered to come to Brighton, from Portsmouth. This was the very journey he had talked me out of for our first date, an hour and a half each way. I resolved that I had to have a real DTR talk, to find this relationship, to set the tenor of things on a less intense level. A week after he'd left, he arrived again, and after collecting him at the train station, we walked to an Italian restaurant near the seafront, where I ate a delicious vegetable risotto and was entirely unable to get myself to have the real talk I'd been meaning to. Opportunities presented themselves like dodgy-looking exits on a highway, and I kept going, thinking there'd be a better opportunity farther on. As we finished dinner, I feverishly texted Fatih while he was in the bathroom that I hadn't said anything yet. She told me to go get a drink and say what I had to say. We wandered our way through the lanes to a cozy pub called the Great Eastern, named after, I assume, the defunct train company. The pub was kind of arranged like a railway car, which, appropriate, but it also lacked sufficient seating. So after fetching our drinks, Kieran and I went to stand in the tiny, and I mean tiny, patio in the back. It was actually good, because it gave us a few moments of privacy to have our talk. I did my best to lay out that I was looking for something more casual, easygoing. I'm worried that I might have thrown out my limited time in the UK, which was kind of a dick move, only because it was dishonest. I told him that I would like to take him home if he wanted to come with me, but before we got up to anything, I wanted to lay my cards on the table. He looked a little uncertain, and then asked, Can you put me up till morning? The night was fun, if a bit didactic. It was an everything-but-with-one-t kind of evening, which was exactly the right speed for both of us at that juncture. The next morning, we woke up, had breakfast at a cafe by the train station, and I saw him off on his train back to Portsmouth. 
And even though everything went well and it was fun and all was good, this is where the drop-off began precipitously. If our chat had slowed a bit after date two, it dropped significantly after date three. In the Word document I have of our WhatsApp chat, which is 100 pages long and covers 10 weeks, the first three weeks account for the first 80 pages. This is mostly on me. Even though I made an earnest effort to make plans for the following week, reading my responses, it seems painfully obvious that I'm not as into it anymore. Is it possible that it's because, having spent the night with him, I felt like I'd seen all there was to see? Sure, though I kind of hate that idea. Most likely, I think it was a case of, I just wasn't that into him. But I felt obligated to stick it out, and if you'll excuse my being coarse, stick it in. Because it was around this time that I finally realized what all the little things that kept catching my eye were. The tea shop, the less fitted clothes, the ramped up enthusiasm early on. Kieran reminded me of me. Not 2015 me, but 2003 me. The one who didn't know hardly anything about being gay, about how to meet someone, how to manage feelings, how to be with someone. I knew I probably couldn't show him everything, but maybe I could give him a little more than was given to me. Our next two dates were both in London, and since neither of us had a domicile to ourselves in that town, bedroom shenanigans were off the table. The first night, we met up for a pint in a pub and dinner at a Greek restaurant on the south bank of the Thames. It was pleasant, though Kieran picked up the check for the dinner, which I felt strange about, both for normal wanting to pull my weight financially reasons, difficult when living off a student stipend, and for feeling awkward about accepting niceties from someone who I was now fairly certain had feelings for me that I couldn't quite return. During dinner, Kieran announced that he'd gotten into a PhD program in Northern England, even farther from Brighton than he was already. I was genuinely happy for him, for all the regular reasons, but also because I had this glimpse of him getting a chance to go to university being out, and all the social growth that that would provide, that maybe I was off the hook for. Still, we made out for a bit on a park bench on our walk back to the train, and I sort of had to chastise myself into appreciating the moment. Charlie, you are kissing a guy with an English accent on the banks of the Thames. What the fuck else do you want? Two weeks went by after this. Whereas before we seemed to be chatting every day, now two or three days would go by where I would forget to return a text. I was operating by my own worst rules— I agonize terribly over long silences from guys I'm interested in. But with our long-ago established appointment at the House of Lords, cutting things off then seemed cruelly premature. We met for our House of Lords date just outside of Parliament. I wore the single suit I had brought with me to the UK. Kieran showed up in a tuxedo. We went through the security screening and in through Westminster Hall, a soaring giant space dating from 1097, that is, the year 1097, where we were corralled into groups and whisked out on our tour. It felt a little indulgent going on a second tour of Parliament, seeing as it wasn't even my country, but it was just as fascinating as the first time, the reds of the House of Lords and the greens of the House of Commons, the simultaneous ornateness and simplicity of it all. In the Commons, which had been closed when I visited with the Fulbrighters earlier in the fall, I was weirdly appalled by the seemingly hysterical sheets of bulletproof glass that separated the strangers' gallery, where the public sits, from the members of Parliament. 
It was in sharp contrast to the air of history mixed with British whimsy about the place. What else can you say about a building that is covered in equal measure by lions and unicorns? The cocktail reception, it turned out, was not related to his work, but was part of an alumni fundraiser for his university. I realized this as we got to the reception, which was happening in a low-ceilinged room that felt as if it was somehow below the House of Lords. It seemed an odd place to hold a fundraiser, until, after grabbing a flute of champagne, we emerged out onto a terrace that was directly on the river. It was a little odd being right underneath the most iconic building in the area, so not entirely able to see it, but the view onto the London Eye, glowing in eerie red, was kind of breathtaking. Life preservers emblazoned with the words House of Parliament hung like real-life political cartoons along the railing. You can see a picture of these online. What I realized between Kieran's tucks and the posh party was that it was quite possible that he'd dropped a good deal of cash on this event. I had the bizarre sensation of feeling briefly flattered by someone wanting to splash out on me, and then almost instantaneously like a poseur, like I had gotten there through misrepresentation. I felt like I was some sort of glorified arm candy for him, I reported later to Fatih. Isn't that what dating people do? She pushed back. Fair enough. In truth, I was glad for my Fulbright in that moment as a good response to the general and what the hell are you doing here line of questioning that runs rampant at these kinds of events. By this point in the year, two months into my Fulbright, I had gotten my patter down to a science. What I wasn't prepared for was when one very sweet woman in her 50s who had gone to dental school at Kieran's University asked the, I believe, unintentionally pointed question, and how do you two know each other? Indicating me and Kieran. It took me a second to recognize that she was genuinely confused, like she was looking at one of those magic eye drawings and trying to figure out whether it was a rocket ship or a kitten. I'd never seen what someone's face looked like up close in the millisecond before they're run over by a truck, but I think the expression on Kieran's face comes pretty close. I could sympathize. The two most ready explanations that came to mind were, we're just friends, which is a lie because of all the kissing, and we're boyfriends, which is a lie because we weren't. But in the way that being the less terrified of two deer caught in the headlights can give you a kind of courage— I found the appropriate, accurate way to describe the two of us. We're dating, I said. Whatever the dentist had been expecting, a rocket ship, a kitten, it had not been that, and she sort of blurted out, oh, right, and took a deep swig of champagne. Please excuse my British accent. After we had drunk the Alumni Association dry, Kieran offered to walk me back to Victoria Station. And yeah, sure, we snogged a bunch in a few doorways and alleyways, Still, I felt the strange sensation that our feelings were not at parity, and it was making me extremely uncomfortable, like I was taking advantage of him. The following weekend, at the behest of my mother, and because I like my family, I flew from London to Los Angeles to attend my twin cousin's bar mitzvahs. Kieran and I messaged briefly while I was gone. I'm in America now! The cars are all on the correct side of the road and no one apologizes! Correct side of the road? You are clearly drunk. But the problem of Kieran was becoming more and more apparent, which was this. When I wasn't around him, I wasn't thinking about him, except when I was feeling anxious about him. I'm not doodling his name on my notebook, I told Fatih. Okay, well no one is doodling names, she replied. Maybe she had a point, but I still couldn't shake the feeling that I was somehow failing someone in this situation. Was it Kieran, or was I failing myself?
With a kind of, if I'm going to walk into walls, I'm going to run through them focus, I made plans to, at long last, go to Portsmouth to spend a night at Kieran's. I got back to the UK on a Tuesday and made plans to head to Portsmouth that Friday. I'm sort of ashamed to admit it now, but the whole way there, I was dreading it. I don't know what the correct course of action was. To call things off earlier? Perhaps. But it seemed to do so after the House of Lords without seeing him again felt overly crude. I think the real self-flagellation was that I wished I liked him better, and even worse, I was worried that his interest in me was what was going to keep me from being interested in him. This speaks to a larger ongoing anxiety I have about wanting guys I can't have and not wanting the ones that are interested in me. It's a tricky equation to map and unfortunately requires one of my least favorite and yet most inescapable activities, assigning relative values to human beings. Here's how it works. First, you find someone you are intrigued by, say, Kieran. Second, they become very interested in you. Third, because for various reasons you don't think very highly of yourself, you assume that in order for them to be that interested in you, there must be something wrong with them. I was originally going to try and find, like, a Sex in the City clip about playing hard to get, but then friend of the podcast Olivia pointed out this song from Follies. I've got those guns, why don't you love me? Oh, you do, I'll see you later, blues. That long as you ignore me, you're the only thing that matters, feeling. That if I'm good enough for you, you're not good enough. And thank you for the present, but what's wrong with it, stuff? Those don't come any closer, cause you know how much I love you, feelings. Those tell me that you love me, oh you did, I gotta run now, blues. To put it another way, the other person's excitement, as sweet and touching as it is, puts tremendous pressure on the situation when you don't feel you can return it naturally and authentically. I arrived at Portsmouth after dark. The area around the harbor, called the Gunwharf Keys, has been done up like a Southern California shopping mall, all outdoors and with an uncramped American aesthetic, if I do say so myself. We made our way through the shops, trying to find a restaurant, consulting the poster-sized menus of chain eateries, and deciding instead to just go get a pint at a pub called the Old Customs House, which did indeed feel like a New England Customs House. We sat in a room with high ceilings and a fireplace that felt like it could have hosted a discussion of revolutionary tendencies in the colonies, or the price of tea. After a pint and a basket of chips, we headed over to the ferry. As it turned out, in actual fact, Kieran lived in Gosport, just across a narrow strait that flows between Portsmouth Harbor and the English Channel. We stopped for another pint, and we were hoping for a bite to eat, but the kitchen was closed at the, sorry to say, boringly named Castle Tavern. This was more of an old man's pub. No flourishes, just ales and lagers. I was priming myself for what was to come when we got back to Kieran's apartment. I wasn't nervous per se, but I was uncertain about how I would fare as a teacher. Would I be patient enough? Would I explain everything correctly? How much would I have to explain? But let us not say that the universe does not have a sense of humor. Mid-pint, I headed to the bathroom to take a leak, And there, mounted on the wall next to the sink, was a machine proclaiming to dispense tickler fundums, which appeared to be condoms that were shaped and painted to look like a Christmas tree, or a cat, or an elephant, or a kangaroo, or more than a few different types of clown. Please, please go to our site to see this picture, because I need you all to be as disturbed as I was. 
I don't want to disappoint you too much, but I did not buy one. I could say that I thought it would be too much for Kieran to take, or that I didn't need to unnecessarily complicate things, or that I was a little afraid of them. All true. But what it really comes down to was that I was no longer having fun. I was no longer in the moment. I was thinking already about my return to Brighton, thinking about my friends, my research, my book. Maybe if I'd been there, really been there, I would have ponied up the two quid for one of them, if only because it could have been hilarious. It could have been something we shared. Come near to me now Swallow my pride We walked back to Kieran's flat. It was in a snazzily developed apartment complex on the water, the kind of place it would never occur to me to live. The minimalist aesthetic extended into Kieran's flat. He had all the components of a house, bed, table, chairs, television, but it felt less like a place someone lived and more like an under-decorated Airbnb. I'd managed not to have any dinner, just a basket of chips at the pub, so I ended up ordering a pizza from Domino's. And then, well... Okay, so I've debated with myself quite a bit how many details to include here. This wasn't really a problem for me during Serial Dater Season 1, since, for the most part, I did not get a lot of action there. Thankfully, I guess, that is not true for this season, but also, it presents a bit of a conundrum. For a while, I was thinking of sharing quite a bit, and maybe, I don't know, creating a family-friendly version. That is, a version that would be specifically friendly for my family. But, while the bedroom stuff does give everything a bit more color, I don't know that it gives it all that much more meaning. And moreover, considering that there's a decent chance that Kieran himself may be listening, Hi, Kieran! I think I can spare you all my one-sided account of the night. Here's the takeaway. It was typical, awkward, clumsy, first-time sex. And I'm not even talking about Kieran here, I'm talking about us. Two people figuring out how their bodies fit together for the first time is awkward more often than not. Sure, sometimes you get it right with the first swing, but a lot of the time you don't. A big part of the problem was that I was too caught up in the weird benevolence I thought I was bestowing upon him. Yes, I did for Kieran what my college quote-unquote boyfriend hadn't done for me, gone all the way, but I'm not sure that there was a net benefit. I did not ask Kieran what he thought about it, and I'm a little terrified too. In the morning, I finished the pizza for breakfast, and Kieran walked me back to the ferry so I could catch a train back to Brighton. I probably made up some excuse about studying or something along those lines, but in fact I felt... I felt bad. I felt like I was uselessly about to hurt this nice guy who was muddling his way out of the closet. I was angry at myself that I didn't like him more, and I was angry at myself for being angry at myself. Whether he picked up on any of this or not, I never knew. We kissed goodbye at the ferry, just on the lips, and then I was away, off back to Portsmouth, to the train, to Brighton, to the rest of my life. By the time I got back to Brighton, it was pretty clear that things couldn't continue as they had. I found myself in the shitty position, however, of only having the following options at my disposal for communicating our end-of-dating status. I had his phone number, but calling him would have been A, precedent-changing, and B, too immediate for me to withstand. I would have liked to email him, but we never exchanged emails. We weren't Facebook friends, and while technically I probably could have figured out his address, having been to his flat, 
That felt both antiquated and kind of florid. That left WhatsApp. It was hardly an ideal medium, but it was the simplest. I tried to be as truthful and kind as I could. I've had a lot of fun hanging out with you over the last couple of months, but I can't quite shake the idea that we're looking for two very different things, I wrote. It's nothing that you've done or said. It's more my own feeling that I'm not giving you something that you want, maybe even need. I waited in a little bit of anxious agony for his response. Would he be angry, disconsolate, apathetic? Or would he not respond at all? He responded the way he always had, diplomatically and enthusiastically, even a little too enthusiastically. Now, it might be that your message is diplomatically phrased to spare my feelings, and it is all down to the fact that I'm a troll with troll manners. However, if that is not the case, and you are worried about things getting out of hand and such, I haven't failed to note that with my impending move up north, many hundreds of miles away, things might be time-limited. You were also good enough to explain things early on, and I'm the great understander. All told, he did go gently into that good night though he did send a photo from the House of Lords alumni fundraiser that a photographer had got of the two of us with another alum. It's a nice photo, with the London Eye behind us. Maybe if Kieran is okay with it, I'll post it. Everyone looks like they're having a good time, which, I guess, is what really matters. In the time since, I've developed a fondness for Kieran that I think was a little lost on me while it was all happening. Not a romantic fondness, I think, but an appreciation for the precious gift his affections were. I still wonder whether it was right of me to let things go on as long as they did. I can only hope he found all manner of interested gentlemen at graduate school. As for me, my final text to Kieran was sent on a Monday. That Thursday was Thanksgiving. Everything was open, but I still insisted on cooking a modified Thanksgiving dinner for my friends. One of my proudest moments of cultural exchange while I was in the UK was introducing my friends to mashed sweet potatoes topped with marshmallows. They all thought I was insane, then tasted it, and begrudgingly agreed that it was delicious. It seems like that's the moment we should all be yearning for. When the other muffin speaks, instead of freaking out, we catch our breath and say, tell me more about yourself. But it's hard to do this all the time to everyone you come across, and sometimes is the hardest to do not when the person is different, but when they're so similar. Somehow, though, I had flown through most of the fall term, I didn't quite have it in my mind that I was more than a quarter of the way through my year. The rest of the British Isle was there, waiting for me. And who knows who could be around the corner? There was possibility lurking everywhere. And all I had to do was stay still long enough to grab it. And not freak out. Next time on Serial Dater. Serial Dater is written, recorded, edited, and produced by me. Editorial help from Olivia Wolfgang Smith, Fatih Ahmed, and Anna Marquardt. Music by Tongues. You can find their EP, Fight, on Apple Music, Spotify, and Amazon Music. For more information, check them out at www.tonguesmusic.com. Kieran, played by Sam Ford. You can find links to more of Sam's work by heading to our website, www.serialdaterpodcast.com. 
There you can also find info, links, and photos related to this episode. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at SerialDaterPod. Email us at SerialDaterPodcast at gmail.com. Special thanks to Julia for recording her joke. Extra special thanks to Betty Luttrell, Bennett Breyer, Ian Shepard, Andrew Berman, and Barbara Silverstone for their generous support. You can support Serial Dater by retweeting, reposting, and secretly downloading it onto your friends' phones while they aren't looking, or more ethically, by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, which helps other people find it. You can donate to Serial Dater by going to our homepage and clicking the Donate button in the upper right-hand corner. And finally, though I'm not sure they want it, special thanks are owed to the U.S.-U.K. Fulbright Commission. This podcast is a work of memoir. It reflects my present recollection of past events. Some names and characteristics have been changed, some events have been compressed, and some dialogue has been recreated.